everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. Welcome, welcome to the episode where we solve the Israel crisis. I know everyone's been waiting to hear us uh, adjudicate this issue. issue. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what to think about this until those brazen heads guys talk about it. And me and you were discussing it yesterday. This uh, thirteen hundred year old conflict. Yeah, well, we were. But it's not even that. it. It goes back. Yeah, I mean. Anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the good news, everyone, is that me and Diz uh, got together yesterday, and we talked about it for about 40 seconds, and um, I think we cracked it, so <laughs> so yeah, my solution you're in, you're is I don't care. <laughs> my, my solution is who cares? Yeah. Um, I, I think we should talk about it a little bit. Uh, I'm okay with talking about it. I, are you okay with talking about it? Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything particularly smart to say. I think in times like these, I think I think I said approximately the same thing about Russia and Ukraine. I think in times <laughs> like these, what I personally like to say, and I don't think me and you are going to say exactly the same things. That's fine. But I think what I personally like to emphasize is that, look, obviously, if you've been listening to the Brazen Heads for a long time, or if you know me, and if you don't fit into either of those two categories, you're probably not listening <laughs> anyway. I don't think there's like a ton of new uptake uh, here. Um, but for people who have been with us a long time or who know me, you probably know that I came from a background of analyzing a lot of this stuff, like all geopolitics in the post 9-11 world, which is you know the world that I rose to adulthood in. Um, through the lens of being uh, a critic of religion, you know, a skeptic, an atheist, and uh, that informed so much of me and how I look at basically uh, everything. So in the past, the way that I would be inclined to talk about a topic like Israel-Palestine, I think in the past what I would tend to say is something pretty glib and pretty uh, simple, which is like, look, these are two uh, warring groups of religious fundamentalists. And so there's not a lot for me to say in either of their favor. And I guess all that I can really say for myself on this whole thing is just that, you know, here's a perfect example of, uh, just as Christopher Hitchens said, um, religion poisons everything. And that's his, that's his watchword throughout the God is not great book, which I still stand by. Um, so that's one way of, that's a lens through which you can look at this entire thing. Um, yeah, I would, I would it, say organized religion poison every, everything, but, but yeah. yeah, well, that's a good, that's a good Small nuance to add religion into it. doesn't, I mean, that's a different kind right. of thing. Right. But yeah. Well, when you start, uh, you know, putting the symbols up there in front of you and saying, no, this is the answer in the back of the book. We're not going to let mm-hmm. you go through this on your own. We're just going to tell you what it is. And before you do the work to realize these answers yourself, we got to get you out and convincing everybody because that's when you're going to be the, the craziest. So, Yeah. I still think that there's a lot of merit in looking at these things this way. I'm not discounting that. But I will say, just to kind of pick up on the thread of what of what you were saying there, that you know, there's a difference between the big R religion and the small R religion. And just in a general sense, things tend to be a little little bit more subtle and, and shaded than the straight up, you know, Richard Dawkins viewpoint. I will say that as I've gotten older, as I've drifted more back to the left where I originally came from before all this stuff, um, I do tend to look things, look at things now less through the lens of analyzing religious fundamentalism or, or, or blaming, you know, all of our woes on it. And more, as you know, uh, as listeners know, more through the lens of 
being an anti-imperialist, you know, being anti-war, anti-imperialism, and uh, and just kind of like trying to have a better historical understanding of the fact that like, look, this conflict doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, it's not because people decided to start being suicide bombers in the year 2000. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. And I think that that people tend to miss that or they tend to be like, you know, all in one camp or all in the other or whatever. And and it's it's so complicated and convoluted and, and fucked up, um, especially inside of American politics, because of all the different ways these things are lobbied around and packaged up. You know, it, it tends to be the case for whatever weird ass reason. I don't know why, but it tends to be the case that, uh, you know, these super uh, militant Zionist billionaires have dumped tons of money into the Republican Party. Uh, and so there's like a really strong like pro-Israel lobby that tends to be on the right wing of this country. Um, but also, that's kind of just a quirk of American politics. And weirdly, there's also a ton of Zionism in the Democratic Party as well. I mean, turns out both sides just like war. They both like the opportunity to sell weapons, and Israel is a great buyer of weapons. Yeah, they just uh, like making money. Is Yeah, and you know, Israel has a great intelligence service, uh, or they purport to have a great intelligence serv service. It obviously failed miserably, miserably on October 7th, just like our uh, purportedly great military industrial complex has failed literally every single thing that it's attempted to do <laughs> since Vietnam inclusive. Uh, and yet it's still the greatest in the world for some reason. I don't know. But like, you know, these things are all kind of conflated and packaged together and whatever inside of our politics. So it's a long way of saying that, uh, you know, the American perspective on this whole thing shouldn't really even be what matters anyway. This is not, this should not be our war. Now, of course, Joe Biden's going to make it our war. Donald Trump would have made it our war too. The system will make this our war because of the money that's at stake. Um, and because, you know, we yeah. need it's to like play a role in everything. Like you always say, what if we just did nothing? Yeah. Yep. And okay, let's take that same self-awareness now. What if we just do nothing? We're not, we're going to do something and make it worse because that's what we've been doing. You right. say Vietnam inclusive. I'd go back to World War One at least, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah. No, fair enough. That's that's interesting to to think about. Yeah, so that I, I want to say that first and foremost, I just wanted to kind of like explain. I think it's interesting from like a in personal intellectual history perspective to just reflect on the fact that I would have in the past chalked this all up to religion, and and now I basically chalk all this up to like the Dulles brothers, you know, basically like you know, just, just, I mean, well, not well, exactly, but you know what I mean. You know, it's, yeah. it's all things. There's there's yeah. really no one explanation. I think that those are two different perspectives. Yeah. And, well, I think the tack on of the religion, there's the tribalism angle. I don't even know mm -hmm. if it's religion so much. I mean, it is on one side definitely more than the other, but I think it's just more tribalism than anything. Tribalism, yeah. And it's <clears throat> like, yeah, I mean, the, it, the the purpose of tribalism is conflict. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. When, <laughs> when Palestinians invade uh, Israel and, I don't know, drop bombs on them or whatever they did, well, that, that kind of seems like the solution here, isn't it? I mean, now mm -hmm. we're all wrapped up into this and we're pretending like this is a big deal to, I don't know. I mean, well, like what's going on in Ukraine? <laughs> do we, mm -hmm. do we forget about that? Or yeah. Do, do we not have our own uh, mental health crisis here in America? You know, I think there's just a laundry list of things that. Right. It seems like a convenient distraction, which is what the purpose of it is. So here we are. Right. It's, it's definitely good to have an opportunity to raise another $100 billion um, and, and to package up those package deals. I don't know if you saw Biden's address to the nation, um, 
but you know he very deliberately uh, sidestepped from trying to talk about Israel Palestine directly or I guess indirectly but you know what I mean building a strong association very explicitly very um, obviously to Putin and Ukraine and then to China and Taiwan uh, and it's it's clear now right. as it always has been <laughs> that America views all these things as one big you know one it, there has to be an enemy there always needs to be something to keep this machine running yep. and when one of them seems to be sputtering out like the Russia Ukraine thing then uh, you know you got to find more fuel for the fire, and um, yeah, it's a bad it's a bad position to be in. Um, and the the American perspective shouldn't matter that much anyway from an individual's perspective. No one should get lost in the sauce of trying to have exactly the right rhetoric or the right posts about this topic um, because you have no power anyway. You know, you you can't stop this thing. These protests can't stop these things. The the, the dude. The anti- I don't want to stop it. I, I go a step further. I don't want to stop it. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, when I say, I, I literally mean that that conflict is the purpose of tribalism. They're doing exactly what they want to do. This is exactly what both sides want to happen. Why would I want to stop it? Yeah. Yeah, I think I can follow that. I, mean, I, I mean, don't want to be like too uh, you know, negative about it. I mean, I, I know people die and it's really sad, but I'm... what. Why would I want to stop that? I mean, you know, it, it's very much like in, um, what was that Star Trek episode? Jeez, I forget the name of it. But where the, 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 the two societies are having an imaginary war so they don't hurt the infrastructure. And Kirk says, mm-hmm. no, you have to have a real war to see really what you're, you're up against. And clearly these two sides, the Israelis and Palestinians, they haven't, it's not enough for them. They have to keep going. Yeah, I guess the only reason I kind of like hit a speed bump there for a second was because, and I know we agree on this, but, you know, just like in principle, like I don't want innocent people dying. I don't want people getting bombed and so on and so forth. I think we all understand that. But but I know what you mean. Like at a deeper level, this is something that needs to be worked out. And the problem is that we can't go backwards in time. We find ourselves in this position right now where this has already been... uh, fucked with you know and 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 not left to run its own course uh this conflict you know this tribal conflict or you know however you want to characterize it if you go all the way back into the prehistory um it's already been muddled with uh and mingled with all these other different things so many times yeah i mean hamas wouldn't exist if it wasn't for america right i mean right right (laughs) do do, do we forget that israel too i mean it's the same yeah israel too right exactly israel too yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and I don't want to give short shrift to the lopsidedness of the suffering. If you're an ethical utilitarian, if this is about an Excel spreadsheet that is toting up the amount of pain and misery um, that each, the Garmin Bozia uh, that, that each different side has incurred, I want to plant a flag and say that I personally am convinced after, you know, reading about this a little bit and listening to some podcasts and stuff, I am convinced that Palestinians have suffered more in recent history, you know, in recent memory. I'm not talking about the Holocaust here. You know, I'm talking about the fact that like, you know, since 2005, you know, Gaza was basically this children of men, uh, you know, prison encampment and, uh, and all those sorts of, I'm not, I'm not denying any of that. This is, this is in no way, uh, giving short shrift to the humanitarian crisis uh, happening there. I hope it doesn't sound that way uh, when we say that, you know, 
all we want is to not be involved in this conflict. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't care ethically. It just means that when it comes down to my political opinion, what I want to vote for, um, you know, I want to vote for something that is uh, nonviolent and non-interfering, uh, just non-stakes-holding position uh, on this and and most other conflicts. Yeah. So. I don't know, yeah. dude. I, I think I might not care. Yeah, maybe. I, I got to think about that. But I, I think I might not care. There's, there's a bunch of, you know, if you want to go down into the muck of like the Twitter level discourse about this conflict, um, there's a bunch of different things you could talk about. Um, you know, we could weigh up again on that sort of Excel spreadsheet of, of Garmin Bozia. We could, we could weigh up like the individual poignant, uh, publicized misery uh, of like, you know, seeing that girl at the rave getting carted off in the back of a truck, you know, and then we found out this week that, that they're reporting that, that she's been pronounced dead. She was one of the hostages. Um, and then we can put that on one side of the ledger. And then on the other side of the ledger, we can talk about this hospital bombing, which there's, you know, conspiratorial takes uh, on both sides of that one. We can talk about there was a refugee camp that was bombed today. Um, yeah, you know, and we can. How do I and, know any of that's true? Yeah, and we can exactly. We can try to weigh all these points against each other, you know. And this I'm, is a, I'm a certain, pathological liar telling me these things. The media, whatever, the powers yeah. that be. So I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How, how do you know how to trust your sources in a world of AI and learning what we learned out of the Iraq War and all that stuff? I'm with you. You know, we are in some sort of kind of post-truth world where or, we have to navigate. What about just after things. Ukraine? Like, remember all those stories that were coming at like the. The yeah. ghost of Ukraine and all these yeah. hero stories, it's just all BS. It's just all made up. Yeah. I, I don't want to be right down the middle, like per perfectly neutral on this. I do want to stake a little bit of a claim to the fact that like, you know, based on my inputs, I'm persuaded uh, that the ledger does come out with much more pain and suffering on, on the Gazans side here. I mean, it just sounds like a miserable situation to be born into and nobody has to be born into that. Um so I will say that, you know, but, you know, it comes down to what your sources are. You know, if you're listening to Ann Applebaum, you don't agree with me. If you just heard Norman Finkelstein on Truanon, which I just listened to, then you probably agree with me. And uh, at least yeah. we can acknowledge that. And we can just we can we can transcend this and we can talk yeah. about the fact that, look, you have no fucking power anyway. It's not about being right. It's not about saying the right post. Uh, you are powerless. To figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. But there's nothing to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's a shame that there is no uh, power to be had here, that there is no political coalition that you could throw your support behind that would represent any sort of deviation from this norm. But uh, you better accept the reality that that is the world that you're living in right here uh, and then figure out how to live your life because being in denial about it and being fixated on, yeah, making the right post or supporting the right congressperson uh, on this topic is just, it's a losing game. It's just a energy sink. It's, it's, it's a succubus. Yeah. Yep. I remember them from Diablo. Now I do think, I guess I will just say, because I'm a fan of some inputs more than I am other inputs. I do think people should listen to Norman Finkelstein on true and on. If you're interested in that type of thing. Um, it's not all exactly, 
a five out of 10. It's, it's not like there's no differences between these different potentially untrustworthy uh, media sources. I know the ones that I like. Um, and the reason why I like them is because they tend to be telling me things that are aligned with a view of the world uh, that is the one that I think is true. You know, if, 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 if a podcast is willing to make merch that is funny, uh, and cool that says Bush did 9-11 on it and just kind of like accept that, you know, then then that's like a media source that I'm going to tend to have more sort of sympathy and agreement with than, uh, you know, the New Yorker, for example, uh, w- when they just like tried to publish an article about decolonizing uh, uh, you know, Palestine while at the same time saying that like, uh, Russia needs to be colonized or something like that. You know, there's, there's lots of weird shit going on in other media sources with like articles getting edited and all that kind of stuff. I guess all that I'm saying is that I'm not trying to represent myself as being perfectly neutral. I certainly have a side that I'm a fan of here and I'm sure everyone can infer what that is. But the key thing again, is that sort of transcendent viewpoints, uh, Matt Chrisman would call it being grill pilled, uh, which just means like, you, you embrace the fact that you have no power here. Uh, and that doesn't mean that you can't say anything. It means that you can talk about that. You can be connected with your fellow man. You can, uh, you know, focus on uh, that sort of a message rather than like owning the other side with, you know, the, the, the best takes possible. Yeah. I see it like, um, you know, yeah, I see like a domestic dispute from down the block or something. And like the husband's like this big mean guy and he's beating up the woman. So you're like, okay, the husband's wrong. But you also know like the woman's like something's not right. <laughs> you know? And you're like, yeah, I, I kind of see where she's coming in from. But also I don't want to, you know, spend too much time with her. And that's how I see yeah. Israel-Palestine. And I and I will admit that I, I do acknowledge that to it's some like, extent. Yeah, that you can make yourself look good when you tell yourself how bad the other side is. But that's it. Yeah. That's that's the only thing you can do. You you can't talk about yourself. It, you know, it's it's like you know, Democrat Republican. It's that whole thing. It, it's tribal. Right. It's tribalism. This is we're just talking about symptoms of tribalism. Yeah. This is what it does. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well said. Well said. You know. I yeah. There's. That's it. I don't even want to try to to slice and dice it any more than that. Everyone, I do want to hear what people think. You know, let us know what you think. The Brazenheads Podcast at Gmail You know, if you're like me, um, you've heard arguments on all sides uh, when it comes to this stuff, and, and it's not as though like there's no ethical truth out there. I'm not a subjectivist or a relativist about this stuff where it's just like, oh yeah, you know, uh, Israel and Palestine are equally good and equally evil as each other. It's like, no, I don't think that that's true. Uh, I think, but I, but I do think that it's like I said before, a a complicated and muddled enough situation, um, where it's a mistake to be too, uh, you know, firm in planting your flag purely on one side or the other. Um, and yeah, I tend to come down on the side of supporting Palestine because I tend to question the modern institutions of power, and Israel certainly is one. Um, but I want to know what people think about that. You know, the Brazen Heads Podcast at Gmail dot com. Yeah, man. Oh, I thought I had a good point there. I guess not. There are good. Not you know, if you want to look size. at it from the. Con- if, if you want to look at the conspiracy stuff, which is always fun to look at, you know, while you're sitting there grill-pilled, it is always fun to learn about the conspiracy stuff. Um, I think there will be a lot of that uh, going forward. You know, I think as we learn more about what actually happened uh, on October 7th and beyond, I think there, there will be some, some spooky stuff 
Um, the two kind of little nuggets that I that I have kind of heard so far is that, you know, A, obviously on day one, there was already kind of conspiracy talk about the sort of Pearl Harbor type theory of like, you know, Israel knew this was coming and they let it happen because it so sort by of Pearl like, Harbor, you, need, you mean 9-11? <laughs> right. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, that's right. Uh, this is Israel's 9-11. Oh, so it's a false flag to start a war and, and totally <laughs> right. defeat Hamas. Okay. Right. So yeah, that, that theory sense. is... That theory is definitely out there. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know. Again, as always, I'm not taking a super firm stance on that. But related Doesn't to Israel it, really have like the kind of fence where if a rat comes within three meters of it, there's like a laser that goes out and shoots it. And it's just like <laughs> you know one of these crazy defenses. But meanwhile, you have these Palestinian guys, these Hamas guys, parachuting in. <laughs> it yeah. just kind of seems ridiculous. It is a little bit ridiculous. The the war nerd guys who who know a lot, they are political, they're leftists, but the, but they also know a lot about the regular like tactical sort of pragmatics of trying to fight uh, a war. That's what they're really interested in. And and one of the things that they said is like this whole thing kind of smells a little bit because we know and we know this like not only because um it makes sense and because there's evidence, but also because Israel has come out and explicitly in the past like bragged about it themselves. We know that Gaza is one of the most surveilled places in the world. You know, it's this extremely densely populated place, one of the most densely populated uh, uh, strips of land in the world. Um, and, and it's constantly being watched and monitored um, by Israel's, you know, hyper intense uh, security and intelligence apparatus. And yet somehow these guys were able to train for this like very like weird complex operation that also involved like paratrooping and stuff. Like they don't have like they don't have like parachute jumping grounds in Gaza. It's like it's fucking Cairo, you know? Yeah, it's um, like there's a director. Come on. Yeah. Um and they and they have this, you know, but but also they have this extensive system of tunnels um so it's like you know were they underground and like training like for the you can't just do this out of the blue you know it's a it's an operation that involves some coordination even if it's kind of a shoestring you know thing you know to pull this off you have to have some some discipline and some some training and stuff and and they just thought that it seemed a little bit odd that there would have been no signs at all no advance warning at all that anything like this was brewing and, and then subsequent after this whole thing happened there has been some chatter that like actually a lot of the deaths that happened on day one, the Israeli deaths that happened on day one was a sort of like, you know, crossfire, like just like the Israeli defense forces like really failed to like do their job and were just like Gomer piling, you know, with their rifles and accidentally shooting a bunch of Israelis or worse, you know, I guess you could go really dark with it and think that it was like intentional like a false flag like you said i don't know i'm not saying that but you know that's it's there's rumblings of people you know speculating about that type of thing um well and then the other thing aren't aren't we allowed to i mean this is you keep lying to us so yeah i'm not gonna believe you i'm gonna think something's something's fishy right The, the other thing i think that's kind of maybe interesting as just a little uh what would you call it a circumstantial sort of factoid that's related to this view of things is that um, a lot of these uh, kibbutz, kibbutzes, I guess kibbutzim is the plural of kibbutzes. I just learned that because of this. Um, but but a lot of these places are like, you know, the, the Israeli equivalent of like a hippie agricultural commune, you know, if you can picture that. It's like, it's really a bunch of, it's, it's almost like a socialistic little community. Um, and they tend not to be 
very politically aligned with the mainstream, you know, ruling government in Israel right now, like the Netanyahu regime. Actually, a lot of these kibbutzes are more like opposition uh, uh, people politically. And so there's also, for that reason, uh, some rumblings and some speculation that like, hey, maybe the IDF decided like those things don't need to be guarded as rigorously you know, as the as the areas of Israel that are more politically aligned with us. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll allow these kibbutzes to be, you know, more to the south, more close yeah, to the Gaza border, and uh, we'll just, you know, not monitor them as, as much and just kind of see what happens. Uh, almost as if they were, like, dangled as kind of bait uh, for widening this sort of conflict. Um, again, th- these are rumblings. I don't, you know, whatever, but it's just, it's, you know, things to think about if you want an alternative viewpoint, uh, aside from what you're going to just hear from, uh, you know, Congress about this. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I think we solved it. Mm-hmm. Have a grill. Yep. That's, that's how you do it. Vote yep. for the guys who don't know where Aleppo is. Yep. Yeah. And for everyone who's like concerned... Yeah, and for everyone who's concerned about the uh, you know beheaded babies and stuff, I mean, all I'll say is, <laughs> I don't want any beheaded babies on either side. And I'm sure that when a hostage... no, I do. That's what I'm saying. That, I <laughs> yeah. want that. Yes, good, right. <laughs> good. I, yeah, I saw someone making some sort of dark joke like that, saying like, you know, when a refugee camp or a hospital gets bombed, like, do you think the babies' heads like remain attached? Like, that's okay, but you know, like, I, I don't know. Like, how are we supposed to again? How are we supposed to do the the uh, the ethical calculus on the pain and suffering here, like I, I don't know. There's there's a lot of killing. By the way, this is uh, sheer numbers wise, statistic wise, this is um, uh, insanely more brutal and deadly uh, than the entire Russia Ukraine war. Uh, if you scale it out by the time frame, uh, there's there's something like um, twenty times the amount of dead per unit of time. Uh, already uh, in this conflict compared to Russia, Ukraine, because there's been such a drawn out sort of like stalemated, uh, you know, situation uh, in Ukraine now where it's just, you know, and someone, I, I heard a thing where they, they played like the, uh, what do you call it? Department of Defense, like spokesperson guy. I can't remember his name. Um, but like when the war in Ukraine first broke out, like he tried to give a press conference talking about how like he can't even imagine uh, the inhumanity of somebody like Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, perpetrating an invasion and killing innocent people like this. And the guy literally started crying uh, when he gave this press conference. But then just last week, they asked him about like, you know, the near 8,000 dead Gazans, you know, just in the first few days of this conflict. And uh, because Israel is an ally and Russia is an opponent of the U.S., uh, with a completely dry eyes, he basically just said like, yeah, well, that's war. You know, what do you expect? So, you know, it, it's all just, you know, all, all of this stuff is manipulated yeah, for the, our own. The, the director told him to cry for one, but not the other. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There's a, it's, yeah. This is all orchestrated to perpetuate the system that's already, that's already running, obviously. So yeah, what can you do? You can, you can watch Twin Peaks and, uh, you can watch a damn good episode. Yeah. It feels like there's three or four scenes and that's about it because there's just mm-hmm. so long and drawn out and they keep going back to them and. Like they, they plant a seed in one scene, then go to another scene, then come back to it. Man, it's so good. So, yeah, so this is like, you know, kind of the pivotal scene in a lot of, or sorry, the pivotal episode. Well, there's uh, in a, a lot pivotal of scene in the episode, yeah. True. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're going back to the uh, twin perfect guy 
uh, with his, you know, grand four hour long digestion of, um, you know, what Twin Peaks is really all about. Um, he kind of kicks off that whole video by talking about the history of the show and saying that this episode right here um, is kind of, in a sense, sort of where it ended uh, when it comes to the creative vision of, of David Lynch. Um, Lynch didn't want to ever reveal who the killer was. At least that's what's said now. And uh, there was a lot of pressure after season one ended and we didn't find out who the killer was. Um, there was a lot of pressure, I guess, from the network uh, to you know give some sort of payoff to the fans. And so we're hell of a ways into season two here, seven episodes into season two here. Uh, and finally, this is the point at which you know, the confluence of all of those pressures and stuff has finally put them into a position where they, they got to reveal who the killer is. So they put David Lynch at the we helm. still don't really find out, which is the, I mean, it, it, you just have more questions once you so-called find out who the killer is. Yeah, I would, I would say it's down to two people. And, uh, and even if you're convinced, I mean, you obviously kind of see spoilers, I guess, obviously, you know, whatever. Um, but you obviously see Leland kill Maddie in this episode. Um, so, but is it either Leland? I I mean, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's the question. Yeah. As they show you the killer, they show you that he's two people. And also in the same episode, which we'll get into it uh, in the same episode, you could also make an argument that, Nah, it was Ben Horn. Actually, Ben Horn was Laura's killer. Whatever was happening with Leland is just like his psychic breakdown that ha- happened after losing yeah. Laura. I think that's plausible. Well, they do know you do know Bob is the killer, mm-hmm. and they didn't just show his reflection as Bob. They, they superimposed Bob's face on Leland's face, so they made yeah. it very obvious. Yeah, but no, but I think you believe Ben Horn when Audrey asked, "Did you?" Did you kill Laura? And he says, I love Laura. Yeah, he think, doesn't I say no. You believe Ben Horn. You believe everything that he's saying because, you know, Audrey just confronts him with the fact that uh, you tried to have sex with me. Dude. Pretty grim. Yeah, I think uh, most men would just be honest in that. Like, you, you got to be really a cool dude to just continue to lie. <laughs> just just <laughs> continue to lie at that, at that point, moment. But no, I, I think people you think you believe that Ben Horn's honest. Anyway, well, yes, I mean he. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it. I mean, I will just say if you're really parsing it, she asks him, "Did you kill her?" He does not say no. He says, "I loved her," which you know, Leland would say that too. So I don't know. The window is still yeah. open for you know, okay. but but probably not. Um, but anyway, before we get there, we'll we'll go through it blow by blow. Um, yeah, this is episode 207, a.k.a. episode 14. It's called Lonely Souls, and it's directed by David Lynch. Um, as we've said often, you know, they really bring in Lynch for the big ones, and uh, this is a big one. It starts off with the, the Log Lady intro. She says, A poem as lovely as a tree. As the night wind blows, the boughs move to and fro, the rustling, the magic rustling that brings on the dark dream, the dream of suffering and pain, pain for the victim, pain for the inflictor of pain, a circle of pain, a circle of suffering. Woe to the ones who behold the pale horse. Pretty good. I just pulled up pale horse. You know, I wanted to, 
Well, you know, what, what, what is pale horse all about? There's a Jungian thing there probably, you know, it's an archetype of something. Well, it goes back well, to, Jung- a, Oh, so you have an answer. Okay. No, well, go ahead. I mean, you probably got it on the tip of your tongue. Well, not, not a pale horse, but Jung think, you know, horse has to do with like masculinity and masculine power of really but like a dangerous kind of power. Mm-hmm. But the twin perfect guy, you know, talks about the pale horse, like the pale of the eyes. Mm-hmm. Like first you have to turn away from the issue. Right. But what what did you find? Yeah. Yeah. Just to reemphasize that. And, and he says, you know, that that poem that the woodsmen say in Twin Peaks season three, which I can't wait to get to, uh, <laughs> they say uh, the horse is the white of the eye and dark within. Uh, and Twin Perfect's analysis of that is that, you know, this white horse appears when Sarah Palmer is being sort of drugged or otherwise immobilized, whatever is happening there. Some, you know, the Black Lodge is seizing her or something. Um, mm-hmm. And sh- so she like passes out so that she can't see uh, the evil that Leland is perpetrating inside of her her very house. Uh, and so that's analogous to like the white that you see in the eyes when you look away from something. You know, you're kind of looking to the side so more white of your eye is visible. What? No, oh, my husband's not raping my daughter. What? That's not going on. <laughs> the, yeah, the classic cartoon like looking side to side take. Um, is uh is yeah the the white of the eyes, um the disambiguation page of Wikipedia, uh reminds us that um there's the uh, the horsemen of the apocalypse, uh and maybe that's kind of like an origin of the idea of a pale horse, um, Revelation six, uh tells of a book or scroll in God's right hand that is sealed with seven seals. Bergman film, by the way. Uh, the Lamb of God slash Lion of Judah opens the first four of the seven seals, which summons four beings that ride out on white, red, black, and pale horses. Um, There's obviously a lot of stuff about pale horses down throughout like art and literature. White and pale? Yeah, I don't know. That's weird, right? I don't know. Hmm. Um, Maybe those are two different things. I don't know horses. Yeah, the the fourth and final horseman is named Death, uh, also known as Thanatos. It's a Greek uh, translation. Of all the writers, he is the only one to whom the text itself explicitly gives a name. Uh, He's not described as carrying a weapon, unlike the other horsemen. Instead, he is followed by Hades. Um, The color of Death's horse is written as Chloros in the original Greek, which can mean either green... Uh, greenish yellow or pale slash pallid uh, or ashen um, so yeah anyway but there's lots of other stuff like isn't there like a, a painting like death rides a pale horse and um, yeah there's a lot of stuff anyway this is the first introduction correct me if I'm wrong this is the first time we see the white horse in Twin Peaks itself right did it That's happen correct, in the pilot yes. okay okay yeah um, Anyway, we'll get there later. That's the Log Lady uh, intro, and it's one of those ones that's that's rather literal and, and very applicable to the episode, not very obtuse. She's talking about a circle of pain for everybody, including the inflictors of pain, i.e. Leland, uh, and she's talking about woe to the ones who behold the pale horse, i.e. Sarah Palmer. Okay. We left off in our last episode with sort of like a a kind of break in the case, right? We were talking to the one-armed man. He's kind of having a whole... He became Mike. 
Yeah, he kind of becomes Mike because they're not giving so him his chemicals. The in the, the Great Northern. That's right. That's right. So that's where we pick up. So you're thinking uh, Ben Horn. So the cops are all gathered around, including Gordon Cole, who's about to leave for some secret business over in Bend, Oregon. Um, and they're all like gathered around getting ready to do a, some sort of operation over at the Great Northern. Uh, we don't quite know what it is yet. We'll see it in the next scene. But they're drinking their coffee and getting ready to to start moving on this information from Mike, the one-armed man. And also, uh, Hawk is going to go track down uh, Harold, uh, the guy who uh, Donna told them about, uh, because Donna said something about a secret diary. And uh, and Gordon had reported back with some forensics that said there were some like diary pages found at the murder site. It's one of those things that's like, didn't we know that in episode one? Like, why are we like getting back to this piece of evidence that like has been completely unmentioned for so long? It's like, oh, Albert came back and told us that, uh, yeah, there were diary pages. It's like, well, yeah, like that was that was the scene of the crime, man. Like, where, where you been all this time? But anyway, I guess that you know Weren't they didn't they really about just Laura's diary. I don't know. It, I I guess that's what I'm saying is that I don't think they have that... to get Laura's diary to incriminate Ben Horn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Laura's secret diary. I mean, it wasn't in the diary pages they did have. Exactly. So they have to get the diary that Harold has, and I guess they didn't know that Harold had it uh, until uh, Donna told them about it. Yeah. So, okay. Um, anyway, next we go to the Great Northern. Uh, and what they're doing is that they're lining up all the people in the Great Northern and showing them to Mike, the one-armed man, one by one. And he's checking out all their faces and saying, no, like this isn't the person. This isn't Bob. Um, crazy scene. Uh, you know, this is a very Lynchian episode. You know, it's it's got a lot of plot stuff in it, but it's got this flair, you know, that other episodes don't have because you got Lynch directing this thing. Just, just the weird choices that he makes. For some reason... There's some sort of like convention of like people in like naval uniforms or something. It's not explained. It's not explained. It's just a lynch. Just a thing. bunch of guys and sailors playing ball, playing they're with all, balls. Yeah, they're all know, bouncing. I don't know if like some sexual connotation or what? Yeah, they're all bouncing rubber balls. Uh, ever since the village people, just the navy's been associated with homosexuality. <laughs> yeah, so it's true. It's true. So it's just it's just a while. It has a crazy like audio cacophony that it makes. You can't tell what it is, and it's not revealed until you know later in the scene. So you're just hearing this stuff and not even knowing what it is, and it's all these rubber balls bouncing around. It's very cool. There's a really cool dolly out shot where it's like the camera is on sort of tracks and it pulls away from the the action. Um, at the end of the scene, it's pretty good. Very Lynchian. He does a shot in the reverse direction, a, a pushing in shot um, in Mulholland Drive when they go to Club Silencio. It's one of the, the coolest uh, pieces of camera work, in my opinion, uh, that Lynch ever did. But anyway, um, the thing that's notable plot-wise about this scene is that um, Ben Horn is kind of storming down the hallway trying to see, like, what are these cops doing in the lobby of my hotel? I'm trying to run a business here. Uh, and when he comes in, uh, that's when Mike, the one-armed man, freaks out uh, and kind of has, like, an episode again. So it's like the presence of Ben Horn seems to have triggered his his evil detectors. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool scene. Um, next we have Hawk uh, going over to Harold's place, and they find Harold dead. Uh, hanging and we'll come back to that in a second uh, there's a little yeah. bit more there but like you said it's kind of like this this episode is set up so that the scenes are kind of like intercut and, and hop back and forth a little bit a few times so we'll get back to more about Harold in a second 
next we're in the Palmer's living room and we have uh, Louis Armstrong uh, doing What a Wonderful World um, while Sarah and Leland relax with their morning coffee uh, with Maddie. And everything seems quaint and fine, uh, but she says she breaks the bad news to them that it's time for her to go home. She's going to drive back to Missoula, Montana, which is Lynch's hometown, by the way, um, tomorrow. And uh, you can tell, obviously, that this is a hard pill for the Palmers to swallow. You know, Maddie has been their proxy for their dead daughter, and uh, they don't know how they're going to fare with her being gone. And, uh, you know, Leland puts on a brave face and tries to cheer Sarah up about it and be the, the grown-up. Um, and he says, you know, after all, you'll come visit us, right? And she says, I'll come galloping back often. I thought that was very notable, galloping, the horse, the pale horse. Plus, there's just a, a creepiness to that scene, the way mm-hmm. that the camera's tracking around them. Yes, I wrote I, down. I get the, like, weren't they playing creepy music? Maybe that was just my my projection because I know it's eventually going to happen in that exact room. I I wrote note how voyeuristic the camera is here. Right, it's like yeah, the camera is kind of like hanging back and sort of like watching them. Like there's this other presence in the room, and it's kind of not at eye level. Is another thing I think Lynch likes to do sometimes. The camera is kind of low. It's almost like it's looking like through the furniture. Uh, at right. them or something in a in a weird way, and it moves around a little bit side to side, like you could Kinda imagine. Like if where there Bob was, was looking at where, when Laura saw her. Exactly. I mean, Laura's mom. Exactly. Good yeah. stuff. Just just great filmmaking there. Um, okay, back to Harold. They find a note pinned to his body, which says "J'ai un homme solitaire," which is French for "I am a lonely man," and uh, or "I am a lonely soul." Uh, some people interpret that as. Um, and that's the same thing, if you remember, that the little creepy magician kid said, uh, in, uh, Mrs. Tremont's or Mrs. Chalfont's, um, Meals on Wheels house, the, the scene where she, she makes the corn, he makes the corn disappear. Yep. Um, so yeah, good stuff. Creepy shit. Um, Not much there. I mean, I'm waiting for you to get to the good scene. Yeah. Uh, Hawk finds the secret diary. We'll get back to that in a second. Um, okay, there's some shit that is not so uh, A-tier uh, in this in this episode. Um, we'll, we'll get to the Ed and Nadine stuff later, <laughs> notably. Uh, but also, I would say the stuff with Bobby and Shelley uh, is just, you know, that, that's fine. I'm always, you know, amused. There's some comedy uh, to, you know, Leo being in the coma. Uh, basically Bobby and Shelly are sitting around trying to figure out how they're going to pay their bills. And, uh, you know, it's trouble in paradise. They're not enough money is coming in from the insurance and, uh, Bobby's got to get well, back to school. Last time they had problems, they just drink a lot of Jack Daniels. So, right. I know I'm they guessing that, just... that didn't solve anything weird. Um, yeah. but there's, you know, Bobby is speculating like, look, I know that Leo was involved in all sorts of illegal shit. And I guess we don't know this now in season two, but we know later in Firewalk with me that like, you know, Bobby's perfectly aware, uh, that Leo is like, you know, dealing cocaine with the, with the, uh, uh, what do you call him? Jacques, the, with the Renault brothers. Um, yeah. Something. Yeah. And, um, and I guess Bobby is just saying like, he's looking through the checkbook and he's saying like, look, you know, 
Leo's involved in a lot of illegal stuff. You guys don't live in a nice house and there's not a lot of money in the bank account. There must be cash stash somewhere. You know, let's try to figure this out. Uh, and as soon as they mention the idea of there being some hidden Leo cash, uh, Leo seems to like wake up. He screams, he spits, and he says, new shoes. Weird little, again, weird little Lynchian flourish, the, the spinning and the new shoes thing. So again, we'll, we'll get back to that later, but, but something's going on. Leo is sort of signaling as soon as the hidden cash got mentioned, just like the one our man sort of signaled when Ben Horn came into the room. There's just these like little, yeah, signals, correlations. Yeah. Okay. Audrey, uh, confronting her creepy father, uh, about one eyed Jacks, um, she basically so cool of Audrey, by the way, like what a cool yeah. tell in her character. Just go right to him and talk mm-hmm. about it. Like as soon as she feels better. Yeah, that's great. It is really cool. It's a very their dynamic is so good uh, in this scene. It's good acting on both sides and it's just yeah. cool characters. It's very unique. You, know, you don't get a, like this is not typical soap opera stuff. This is this is deep, dark stuff. Um, where she kind of confronts him and just says, like, yeah, I was that new girl at One-Eyed Jacks. I know everything. Um, you tried to have sex with me, <laughs> like, <laughs> basically. Effectively, uh, yeah. And, you know, just putting him in his place about this stuff and just being so confident about it and just, like, owning it so much really kind of puts him on the spot where he, he has to tell her the truth. He has to come clean with her. Um, and so he says, yes, he's owned it for five years. He says that he did know that Laura worked there, uh, he was not the one who instigated that. The creepy dude, Emery, is the one who brought Laura into One-Eyed Jacks. Um, but Ben did sleep with her, which he's you know obviously ashamed to admit to his daughter, who's the same age, who's her. in the same class as her. And she says, did you kill her? And he's, he cries and says, I loved her. And... Uh, yeah, like I said, just just an interesting dynamic there, you know. It's just, you know, Ben is basically like pitiful but also evil at the same time. Um I don't know if evil is the right word. You know, Ben Ben did Kinda evil cool. things. Yeah, Ben Ben did evil things, but you know, Ben is complicated. There's going to be a lot more Ben, you know, going forward in season 2. There's a lot to him and and Ben is a, a beautiful character in season 3 as well. I mean, he's he's just great guy, great actor. Um and of course, bad, you know, bad, unethical actions being taken here, but, but also there's more to it than that. And, um, yeah, Audrey's very well acted, you know, she just, she just has to digest this, you know, her, she's doing her job here. She's agent Cooper's assistant. Uh, and this is about justice for her at this point. And that's part of her transformation from like a, you know, do nothing, uh, sort of truant bad girl into having some sort of purpose. And, um, yeah, that's that's all part of what's going on with her at the end of this scene. It's it's really good. Okay, um, now we have to kill some time uh, in this episode, <laughs> so <laughs> we're getting into uh, Ed and Nadine. Um, I I really like this. Okay, good. I like this scene because it's like they're carrying on the delusion that the whole relationship's been for the past twenty years. Now yeah. Nadine thinks that she's in high school and everybody has to play along. Yeah, it's just an exaggeration of what's been happening. And there are cool Lynchian notes to this too, which I'll talk about. Like, so yeah, basically the scene starts off with Shelley talking to Norma before Ed and Nadine come in, just oh, saying yeah. like, you know, look, I can't work here while I'm also trying to take care of Leo. I'm in a terrible situation, but I also love you, Norma. I don't want to let you down. I have to quit for a little while. And she cries and Norma consoles her and all that stuff. 
then Ed and Nadine come in and um, basically like, you know, they have to play along with Nadine's, you know, uh, um, what do you call it? Delusion, her, her amnesia, uh, where, where, yeah, where she thinks that she's still in high school and um, they order a milkshake and uh, Nadine crushes it in her hand because she has this like superhuman strength um which by the way the thing about Nadine having superhuman strength is is interesting like you know yes it's kind of correlated to her amnesia but also if you remember like before she even had the amnesia there was the thing where Ed pissed her off by spilling oil on the drape runners and she bent the metal bars of her rowing machine she like bent the metal yeah, uh, I remember talking about that because she had terrible leverage on that handle. She still <laughs> bent it. And like nobody worked out a lot would, would make that scene that way. Right, right. So um, there, there's something about that too where it's not just because of her amnesia, just Nadine has some sort of um, physical power to her. Um, but she anyway. She seems like a, a very wiry woman. Yeah. I mean, not thick, but uh, you know, I, I sense like there's just thick tendons or something. Yeah, know? lean and mean. Yeah, like yeah. I think she could throw a strong punch. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she crushes the glass in her hand uh, inadvertently, and you know she's acting like a goofy schoolgirl. But th- there is cool Lynch stuff there. Like I, I do think it's very Lynchian, like in that old school sort of like beauty and violence, like blue velvet uh, Lynch sort of uh, trope, where it's like the blood mixed with the chocolate, mixed with the whipped cream in her hand. It's sort of like this, almost sort of like a Neapolitan ice cream uh, type deal, but it's like blood instead of strawberry. I'm sure that that's like an appealing, like aesthetic, like visual thing for Lynch. And like, she's not bothered by the fact that she's cut. She's just like, still wants to like kiss Ed and be romantic and stuff. And that's, that's very Lynchian to me, I think. Hmm. But yeah, yeah, like you said, like, like, he, like he would be the kind of guy who would just like that visually. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, a yes, but also b, I think it's like, I I think he intentionally earlier on in his career, maybe not so much now, but like earlier on, I think he tried to do that kind of stuff more. Like it was just one of his little signatures that he would do is to have some sort of like something that's very like weird and violent, but also like beautiful in some sort of weird absurd way like the the cutoff ear in blue velvet like finding the cutoff ear in the middle of the uh you know idyllic field uh, in blue velvet is like a quintessential lynch thing and i think this like cut hand like mixed with like blood and and sugar and and whipped cream is is like a thing for him aesthetically hmm. um but yeah it has an intellectual point too like you said it, it has a there, there's an actual point to it, which is like this idea that, you know, Ed and Nadine were already a fantasy. So the amnesia is just kind of like, uh, you know, whipped cream on top, if you will, uh, of that thing that was already happening. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Uh, we're getting there. Um, we get back to Shelly and Leo's place. Um, Bobby brings Mike along with them, the high school idiot, Mike. Um, and, they have an idea. Um, you know, they've heard uh, in the past, they've heard of people like hiding stuff in their shoes. And so since or in their boots, so since Leo said new shoes, they get Leo's boots, they nail it with a hammer. They don't find cash hidden inside, but they do find a little micro cassette tape. Um, so there's a new interesting little plot point 
And uh, it doesn't go any farther than that yet. We'll get back to that in a future episode. Uh, okay. Yeah, see, that's what I'm saying. Like, just revealing the character in this scene doesn't, or the, the killer doesn't do anything. There's no closure. Because now you have this cassette tape. Mm-hmm. You have Tojimura revealing yeah. himself to be Catherine. I, yeah. You know, like who who's um you know who is Leland? Who's this Bob guy? I, I just think it answer it asks more questions. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, well, like, like going to the pyramids didn't answer any questions. Now I have like fifty thousand more. You it know? definitely it did not. not closure. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Right. Anyway. Um, okay, so Coop goes through the secret diary that they got from Harold's place. There's repeated references to Bob. Uh, Laura describes Bob as a friend of her father's, uh, but she also says, someday I'm going to tell the world about Ben Horn. Um, so it's kind of both things, you know? And again, if you don't know anything yet, you're probably thinking, well, look, Ben Horn is a friend of Laura's father. You know, Leland works for Ben Horn. Well, that, that's what Cooper's thinking. Yeah, Because exactly. right after that, he, he issues the arrest. Well, and then Audrey. Right, right. Audrey comes in and tells her everything that she just got from, from Ben. Um, by the way, um, this is one of the times, if you're paying close attention, there's new music introduced during this part, this scene where Audrey is talking to Cooper. It's in the same sort of genre, that sort of like sputtery, smoky sort of jazz, uh, that, that he likes to use, like from the jukebox and all that kind of stuff in Twin Peaks. But it's a new one of those. Uh, and it sounds pretty cool. I think Lynch likes to do that here and there, like introduce a sort of new theme, but in sort of the same mold. He does that in the, uh, the conclusion of season two as well. There's a couple of times where new music is, is introduced that just kind of like advances uh, the, the audio themes of twin peaks. So it's, it's good stuff. Uh, but anyway, Cooper is getting real serious and almost maybe you could say sort of like angry or just like, I don't know, alarmed. Like he's on the trail here. Um, when he well, well, to him, I mean, that's probably serendipity. He's reading about, mm-hmm. you know, Ben Horn, you mm-hmm. know, Laura knowing about Ben Horn, and then Audrey comes in. So, right. He's so like, he, Tibet, we'll, we'll Tibet this guy up and then go arrest Ben Horn. Exactly. So he, he tells Harry, we need an arrest warrant for Ben Horn. Yeah. Um, okay. Now Ben is meeting with Tojimura to, to close the deal, that business deal from a few episodes back. Um, and right when he's about to like finish off the contracts, uh, Harry and all the cops come in to arrest him. Um, it's a weird scene. Ben makes it, ben, ben is in denial. I think he's thinking like, you know, even though I didn't do this, like I'm fucked. <laughs> like it doesn't matter because I did all this one eyed Jack stuff. Like this is bad for me. Um, and he, he's in denial. He, he's he, instead of like, uh, you know, going with the cops or, you know, submitting to their arrest, he <laughs> yeah, says, man. he tells them to leave and says, I'm going out for a sandwich. It's just kind of indicative of this character who thinks like he's still in control basically. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, they have to arrest but, him. But then he still fights the cops. He's still resisting. Yeah. Which that's sweet. I mean, you gotta, come on. Yeah. The, um, offer some resistance. Um, the focus on the camera is a little bit off in this scene. And that happens another time later on. Like if you're, if you're watching closely, it's, it's a little bit blurry, um, in a weird way. I actually don't know if that's intentional. I also think that at a certain point, like, mm. you know, th- this wasn't made on a film quality budget or timeline. So maybe there's yeah. just little tiny things like that. 
Well, but the scene right before this, though, it's the Palmer house, and now the needle's off the record. Yeah, I have that next in my notes, but I might oh, have... that's next? Yeah. Um, but we cut back to it a few times. So, yeah, we, we got... We're in the Palmer's living room. The record is is reached its end, and it's now just like clicking at the end of the record, uh, when the needle's like skipping at the end of the groove. And uh, Sarah Palmer is is crawling down the steps, and uh, she calls for Leland. She's obviously, yeah, she's like writhing somehow. Something is happening, some sort of episode. There's also a shot of the ceiling fan. Um, But most of all, there's music that tells me something's wrong. That's how um, I really know. Yeah. Uh, so then we hop back to the sheriff station um, where they're bringing in Ben for his arrest and the log lady is there. Um, she says, we don't know what will happen or when, but there are owls in the roadhouse. And Coop says, something is happening, isn't it, Margaret? And she says, yes. Um, then we have Pete making his midnight snack when Mr. Tojimura comes in and hugs him and kisses him. And he's like, wait a minute, Buster. <laughs> awesome Pete slapstick. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is where finally it's revealed uh, that Tojimura is actually Catherine in disguise this whole time. I wonder how many people actually knew that already um, when this show was fresh. I don't know. Oh, it- Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. I, you, you just It's easy to look back at it and go, oh, yeah, that's really bad makeup, whatever. But Yeah. I mean, if you didn't know it was Catherine, at least you must have been thinking, like, something is very weird about this, like, whatever it is. Um, right. I don't know. And there's no body, so. Yeah. Um, okay, and then we go back to Sarah Palmer crawling around in the living room. Um, she's, you know, yeah, she's writhing, she's suffering, she's calling out for Leland, and uh, then she sees the white horse and passes out. She's she's looking at the empty space of her living room, and then this white horse appears and, and fades back away again. Uh, yeah. And as she passes out, the camera moves over, and we see that Leland is all prim and proper, straightening his tie uh, in the mirror, getting all... <laughs> He's going out. Yeah, getting all He's spiffed whatever, up. Whatever, babe. <laughs> Yep. You, you keep seeing my horses. I'm going to go party. Yep. Okay, now here we go. We're getting into the rough stuff. Um, the Twin Perfect guy uh, correctly uh, mentions or or, or uh, gives the opinion that uh, what's coming up next, um, the murder of Maddie, is, is one of the gnarliest, most gruesome things that's probably ever been on TV. Uh, I got to think that that's true. I mean, not, I mean, it's not like it's, you know, the gore like Friday the 13th or something, but it's just the, the intensity and the disturbing nature of it is, um, is, is quite high. <laughs> it's quite high for network TV. Um, and it's, it's intermingled with this beautiful ethereal roadhouse scene. Um, just in a way that only Lynch could do, of course, you know, the roadhouse club silencio, the club in blue velvet, uh, you know, Rebecca Del Rio singing, like th- these things are all kind of the same type of a thing. It's this sort of netherworld that Lynch likes to to put these things in, and uh, it's just so good. But anyway, the, the whole thing kind of kicks off. The whole epic conclusion of this episode kicks off with uh, Julie Cruz on stage at the Roadhouse. Julie Cruz, by the way, passed away last year. Um, she was just like a real original, just this weirdo singer lady. Um, I was reading her Wikipedia. Apparently. Um, when they were making Blue Velvet, uh, they wanted to use this song 
uh, called Song to the Siren. It was originally written by Tim Buckley, who was Jeff Buckley's father. Um, that's a whole weird story. Tim Buckley and Jeff Buckley were father and son, and they both died young in basically the same weird way, like in weird drowning incidents. Super fucked up. Um, totally, totally separate uh, rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. But, but anyway, in the 80s, this, um, I think they're a Scottish band um, called this Mortal Coil. They're sort of like a gothy sort of band uh, from the 80s. Did a cover of this song, the Song to Siren. And it's really weird and powerful. It's just one of those like slow singing based songs that's very dreamy and beautiful, kind of like Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah, actually, um, ironically. Um, but anyway, Lynch wanted to use this song for Blue Velvet and they could not get the rights. Uh, so Lynch and Badalamenti found this singer, Julie Cruz, and basically just decided like, well, she can sing this way. Um, Angelo, like write a song. Uh, that's kind of like this, and we'll use it, you know, in the movie instead. Anyway, that was the beginning of this artistic relationship with Julie Cruz, mm -hmm. who wound up going on to release like four albums and became kind of like a notable, like weird new agey kind of singer. Yeah, like at the Roadhouse when she's singing, I, I think, yeah, I could see Derek hanging out here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't even like this kind of music, but it's just, but the vibe is exactly right for the scene for sure. And by the way, one uh, postscript to that story, they did wind up getting the rights for uh, Song to the Siren uh, and used it in Lost Highway uh, in sort of like the, the, the epic um, sex scene uh, in Lost Highway. Um, which you, you've never seen Lost Highway, right? Does no, yeah, we should, we should do an episode on that someday. Um, I think it is streaming on Criterion, yeah, it might be. Um, and Blue Velvet is as well, yeah. Um, I guess I'll just reserve my opinion on that. We can talk about that later, but I do think that it's kind of interesting that this thing that was sort of like they wanted it to happen so badly for Blue Velvet, it couldn't happen. Then finally, you know, 15 years later, Lynch is able to make Lost Highway. And of course, he's at the top of the world and can do anything he wants when he makes that movie. So he finally gets to use his song. Um, but Lost Highway is such a lesser movie compared to so many of the other <laughs> Lynch movies that it's like he finally gets his perfect song and it kind of goes to waste because th that movie is just sort of like just it, it doesn't live up to a lot of this other stuff. But anyway, that's just my opinion. Julie Cruz is singing at the Roadhouse. She's singing an upbeat little number, uh, rocking back inside my heart. And uh, Donna and James are hanging out there and just kind of catching us up on plot stuff. Oh, you heard about Harold Smith. Yeah, he died. It's it's not anybody's fault. Everybody's hurt inside. You know, Donna feels guilty about that's it. That's what James says. Everybody's hurt inside. Yeah, that's an James awesome, is cool. awesome James, James is cool. line. Yeah, James pulling off the full like '90s like Smashing Pumpkins fan kind of uh, aesthetic there. Like, oh, everyone's hurt. The world is a vampire. <laughs> nah, you wouldn't listen to Smashing Pumpkins. Just <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I see what you're saying, but he doesn't have like um, he's not alternative. No, no, he's he's a greaser. Yeah, it's yeah. way cooler that way. But yeah, Donna, Donna feels guilty that she sort of like violated, you know, Harold Smith's life. All that he had was was that house and, and she violated that. But then again, as James tells her, like, you know, you were just trying to find out about Laura. Like we need, you know, we owe this to Laura. Um, oh, and also, by the way, did you hear Maddie's leaving? And Donna's like, oh, wow, she didn't tell me. Um, now, um, Truman 
Cooper and the log lady all arrive at the roadhouse. Uh, that's a good hang right there. Wouldn't you like to be the fourth person at that table <laughs> eating peanuts and, and chatting it up with uh, Sheriff Truman about like Josie or something? Well, dude, you don't even, I mean, with the log lady, do you even just kind of get the vibes from the log, right? Yeah, that's exactly. That's what she does. Yeah, I guess you would be the fourth person at the table because, of course, the log counts. Yeah, yeah or the fifth person. The, uh, anyway. The, the unconscious of the town is represented by the, the forest, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they take a table and, and drink a beer. Um, there's also a really cool little, like, horn blast section that happens. I don't really know if that's part of the song or if they added that in the sound design of this scene. Um, but, yeah, there's just a wild little, like, violent, loud, um, like, cartoonish horn blast that happens in the middle of this very sort of, like, placid uh, sort of driving song. Um and then Donna lip syncs the lyrics for James. You know, I want you right back, rocking back inside my heart. It's very sweet. You know, they're reconnecting. The threat of Maddie is gone. Uh, you know, James and Donna are going to be okay. Uh, even Sheriff Truman uh, and the Log Lady are tapping along to the beat of this song. You know, it's really all kind of everybody's on the same wavelength here with this Julie Cruz music. Um, and then it's kind of it's kind of interesting. Then there's just like a little time cut. It's like we were all grooving at the roadhouse and now we're just skipping ahead to like later in the set where we're listening to the, the next Julie Cruz song. Um, and this is like the sad, slow number. Um, I don't know what this song is called, but it's like the quintessential like love, don't go away, something like that. Um, and Cooper's looking around the bar. If you're watching closely, you can see that the, the tall old room service guy is sitting at the bar next to Bobby. Um and there, there's just, you know, some sort of vibe is, is setting in here. And um, and then the giant appears on stage uh, to Cooper. And there's a spotlight on Cooper. Spotlights are used to great effect the whole end of this episode. Yeah. And uh, the giant warns Cooper. He says, it is happening again. He says it twice. Okay. Now here's the terrible murder scene. Um, yeah, we're back in the Palmer's living room. We have the shot of the famous shot of Leland in the mirror. And then it, it shows Bob. You can see not only Bob's reflection in the mirror, but also Bob superimposed on Leland's face, just like what yeah, you said. Which feels cheap to me, right? Does yeah. Does it feel cheap to you? It's like, yeah, we yeah. get it. It's not a perfect visual effect. I think it could have been pulled off better. You might not have even needed it. Yeah, yeah, you don't need it. We get it. And, and plus, I mean, you have Bob coming after uh maddie later i was like right it's obvious no you also have bob sucking on maddie's chin right which is totally awesome that's my favorite part of the episode by the way yeah it's pretty grim because because um, you you want to see like some greasy hair dude just sucking yeah on some girl's chin that's what you want to see yeah <laughs> well you're gonna love firewalk with me Oh, I, I do love it. Yeah. Um, okay, well, then we you see... You know, I rewatched it recently, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to have to rewatch it again, too. Pretty soon here. Oh, no. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Leland puts gloves on. You know, obviously, at this point, the audience is on to what's happening here. Uh, you know, evil is <laughs> is visited the house. Well. This is not going to be good. Leland's, Leland looking creepy. Yeah, Leland's putting on <laughs> surgical gloves. Um, hey, wise man. 
Maddie is coming down the stairs saying, oh, it smells like something's burning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got to go. Funniest thing. What's going on? As she's leaving. It's so great, man. And then she says it smells like something's burning. And right. then, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, you know, we, I think we already heard, didn't, um, didn't Dr. Jacoby said he smelled engine oil when he was in the yep. hospital? I'm pretty sure he did. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that'll come back and firewalk with me also. Yep. Um, and then, yeah. So then, then Leland slash Bob, uh, attacks Maddie, sort of runs at her in this frantic way. Uh, again, spotlights uh, are used. The, she, Maddie is kind of spotlit as the victim uh, in a very creepy way. And um, they also take the audio from the scene of like, you know, him yelling and her screaming and they pitch it down. So that sounds sort of like animalistic, um, very grim. Uh, and not only does he like choke her, but he also literally punches her in the face, uh, and, and then kind of like knocks her out at one point and picks her up and is like dancing with her while he's like crying and saying Laura's name and stuff. Yeah, it's, but, but Cooper punches Blackie's sister in the face. <laughs> True. Those are equal. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> yeah. It's so bad. He says, Laura, my baby. And then we see Bob. Yeah. Like kissing her, sucking her neck really bad. Um, and it, it goes on. I mean, it's this is paced out in a way where you're subjected to the the, the terribleness uh, of this killing, um, and it ends in in almost kind of a funny way, uh, if that's possible, where he says, "You're going back to Missoula, Montana," uh, and then uh, slams her head into the wall, um, and then we see him using an exacto knife to put the O letter underneath her nail which we remember all the way back from the pilot is like the calling card uh, of this killer i guess that's how you really know it's not ben horn if there was ever any doubt you're literally seeing the exact mo being carried out here by leland yeah okay um so that's it uh we go back to the roadhouse the giant fades away julie cruz is back on stage and uh, it's just so well done. I love the the way that this is conveyed, the energy that is conveyed here without really saying anything. Um, the old room service guy, this this lovable idiot, uh, comes up to Cooper and says, "I'm so sorry." Um, and and uh, I just think that's very powerful. The focus is kind of off on the shot again, and I think that's on purpose. Um, and then you see that both Bobby over at the bar and then Donna in the booth are both just randomly gripped by just, you know, something, a a bad omen. They know something is wrong Uh, and you can just see it sort of seize both of them. I think that's really cool. Uh, And, and Donna is, is, you know, starts sobbing, you know, she, we don't Bobby or or, or James. Um, I think Bobby, Bobby. I I mean, Bobby. Yeah. He, cause he's over at the bar, but kind of off on his own. He was just like hanging out smoking, but, but they cut back to him a few times and you can tell on his face, like, Something has hit him. He knows that something is wrong. Hmm. But then, yeah, it's 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 it focuses on Donna at the end of the episode there, and uh, yeah, she's she's sobbing, and we can't hear what she's saying. We can't hear her sobs. It's it's done with like the music being the dominant thing, and uh, and that's it. Um, yeah, that's the end of the episode. Powerful stuff. Yeah, I mean, and so after the the big reveal, I mean, don't don't you just want to know, like, okay, so what happens? Yeah, right. It's it's not. It feels very uh, anticlimactic, you know. To to Dave Lynch's credit, of course. Yeah, it's like um, 
You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, fine. You want me to reveal the killer? I'll reveal the killer, but I'll do it in a cool way where there's still going to be a good show. Yeah, yeah, you there's know, still good pieces for a show. I mean, it. it someone argue that it turns not good, but yeah, it's it's like you know, but also you don't know. I mean, and yeah, there's lots of threads. You know, there's whatever the hell is going on with all this Josie stuff. Like, you know, didn't even talk about that this episode. Um, the Wyndham Earl, you know, the Wyndham Earl thread is already out there. You know, that's, that's already been mentioned by, by, uh, Albert. Um, so, you know, there's something there and, uh, yeah, now we know who the killer is. What's going to happen with Ben Horn. What's the deal with Catherine being back. What's going to happen with Leo and Shelly and Bobby. Like it's well, definitely not I, over. Well, well, just how do you catch Bob? Yeah. Is he real? Yeah. No, he's not really. You got to go to this other dimension, the Black Lodge, to get him. Right. What's with the log lady? What's with the owls? You know, like none yeah, of that is I, resolved. I mean, yeah, that's why. That's what I didn't like about the Twin Perfect guy. And I don't know if it's a, a correct reporting of the situation, but I, I think revealing the killers a, a big nothing burger. Mm-hmm. That's not what the show's about at all. Yeah, it's, I think if David Lynch thought that, I'm mean, kind of question like really you think that's what this is about the thing that's going to really stink in the end about finding out who the killer is is that we're going to lose ray wise from the show pretty soon and i just never want him to not be on screen so that's kind of the big bummer but it it doesn't yeah it doesn't ruin the potential for for things to come and the evidence of that is is not only the end of season two, because the end of season two is very good. You know, the, the, the finale of season two is awesome. It's one of the best Twin Peaks episodes. So we're certainly not done uh, with Twin Peaks being cool. But but especially, obviously, season three. It's like, you know, the, the fact that we know who killed Laura Palmer is in no way uh, a problem for making season three as amazing and awesome as it is. It does not detract one bit. Yeah. In fact, it's sort of like part of the impetus of it. And, uh, and that's why, um, yeah, you, you never get all the answers. And, and the more you think you know, the more sort of manifold the mysteries are. And uh, that's, that's good stuff. You know what it is? I mean, I'm sure David Lynch just didn't like being bossed around. Yep. And, and maybe he just latched onto that as like, I'm annoyed that you made me do that one thing. Right. Yep. But it in no way takes anything away from the show. I mean, it's not even close. So, well, on that note, we'll get back into it uh, next time around. Um, I got to pee so bad, so I'm going to wrap things up here. But everyone, let right. us know what you think. The Brazenheads Podcast at gmail dot com. Um, that was by um, you know, if you go by the IMDb votes, that was one of the best episodes in the history of the series uh, when it comes to fan opinions and. Uh, yeah, I tend to agree. It was a great one. It's not my absolute fave. I think like the season two debut is still better, um, but it's, it's very it's, much the who shot Mister Burns of Twin Peaks. Yes, absolutely. It's <laughs> it's quite good. And in fact, they reference Twin Peaks in Who Shot Mister yep, Burns. So of course, <laughs> that's right, man. That's the zeitgeist. All right, uh, yeah. Everybody, let right. us know what you think, and we'll talk to you soon. You have a good pee. All right, late. <laughs>